I'm Sage. And I'm William. And this is Half Half As Well, Well, where we promise Tolkien lore half as much as you should like. Explained half as well as you deserve. This is our very first episode, so today we will be talking about the beginning of The Hobbit. So we'll be starting with chapters 1 through 5, An Unexpected Party, Roast Mutton, A Short Rest, Overhill and Underhill, and Riddles in the Dark. So in our introductory episode, we talked about how we wanted to start with The Hobbit to get into Tolkien's works because it's like by far the easiest to read. And I think it's just a good beginner place for anyone getting into Tolkien. The first Tolkien book I ever read was The Hobbit, and I read it over and over before I read Lord of the Rings. And your first experience with Tolkien was the Rankin-Bass Hobbit movie. Exactly. Yeah. And I I think this is a very common place to start, um, even though... Technically, if we were going in order of the history of Middle Earth, this is definitely not where we would start. Um, As far as uh, ease of read and being charmed by the world, which is something you've talked about a lot, this is the Mm -hmm. best place to start off. Yeah, and it'll get progressively harder as we're going throughout Lord of the Rings and then into the Silmarillion to cap it all off, so... But right now we're just kind of taking it easy on this uh, nice little adventure from the Shire to the Lonely Mountain. Okay, so let's get into it. The Hobbit started off as um, a series of these tales that uh, Tolkien would tell his children. Just these kind of uh, charming little fairy tales about this character Bilbo Baggins that he eventually wrote into a novel, uh, which he started writing in 1930. And it was published in 1937. However... Tolkien had already started writing the legends and myths that would go on to become the Silmarillion as early as 1916. So over a decade before The Hobbit even began, he had already created this really rich world that he was working on and developing his entire life. So The Hobbit is kind of set against this larger tapestry of this world that he had already created that he didn't think was ever really going to get published. He was getting a lot of this lore and this world out in The Hobbit, um, in this story that he had written for his kids. Okay, very cool. I think that's pretty clear um, from some of the stories in The Hobbit, uh, even in the section that we've read already. Um, So we'll talk about that a little bit later. Let's just start off um, with a little bit of a recap of each of the chapters. So the first one, An Unexpected Party. I don't think there's any part of Tolkien that I've read more than this first chapter of The Hobbit. I feel like yeah. I have picked up The Hobbit to, you know, I, I definitely read it through once very successfully mm-hmm. for school. But I think besides that, I've picked it up many times um, with the thought of like, yeah, let me get into into Lord of the Rings and all of this. Um, and have read the first chapter and then have not been able to continue. It's also just one that sticks in my head. We are introduced to this whole world of Under the Hill, where Bilbo Baggins lives. Um, yeah. And the Shire actually doesn't exist yet. No, it's not called the Shire at all, at least in There's this first. There's just the hill, the water. I think he says something like the country round yeah, um, or the county round. And that's really it. The Lord of the Rings world has not been fleshed out yet. That will come like over like a decade later in uh, Tolkien's life. So yeah, I think it's important to keep in mind in this story that there are these little things that uh, we need to keep in mind when he was writing this and what was created at that moment and what wasn't created because these stories will evolve into that, but that's not where they're at just yet. Absolutely. This is such a great chapter. I uh, love it. We, We get to know Bilbo 
and that he is a hobbit and that the type of hobbits he lives around are generally pretty close-minded. They're not interested in adventures. Um, and something I had totally forgotten was that he is half Took and descended from Old Took, who is like the king of the hobbits and is an adventurous fellow. Yeah, the Took family in general is, they're well known for um, adventures and running off, namely with Gandalf, it sounds like, in the past. So Gandalf has a history with that side of the family. Yeah, a lot of The Hobbit is just this constant push and pull between like the Took and the Baggins side of Bilbo's uh, family ancestry. And, you know, the Baggins are much more uh, traditionally Hobbit-like. They're very kind of much more conservative, one could say. It's it's pretty funny to see, you know, you mentioned the, the warring between the different sides of Bilbo. That is so present in this first installment of his story where, uh, you know, basically he's gaslit into joining a big marauding band of of travelers yeah gandalf rolls up one day and he's like you're you're coming with us like you you know you don't have much of a say like no not um, at all or he just knows just the right things to say to get him to kind of join along um yeah essentially the the dwarves kind of burst in they're like we're supposed to be here there's a sign on the door uh give me your seed cakes and give me some beer and give me you know they basically take full advantage of his larder and being the proper gentleman that he is he he um abides by it um even as he becomes more and more distressed oh he's like keep, he's just getting more and more pissed off and yeah just like yeah yeah and uh I, I think it's funny too that you know bilbo isn't presented as like a nice guy he's presented as being polite even though it's very clear that that's not how he feels so i think there's like a funny commentary on like that kind of country nice sure yeah. mentality mm -hmm. where um he wants very much to throw everyone out of his house but uh mm -hmm. is is sort of held by his his taste for being a good host and stuff like that. And I mean, even just like being like a good hobbit. Like, right. You know, that hobbit culture of, you know, it's kind of like being polite and... Expecting company and yeah. I think it's hilarious that this kind of reaches a fever pitch when he has a little bit of a mental breakdown and has a panic attack and kind of passes totally. out for a while. Yeah. Um, but once he wakes up, he is totally into the adventure. He's He's there to like prove himself. Yeah, he doesn't want to be just totally written off. He kind of has a little bit of a pride about him. And that Took side awakes when he hears like the dwarves singing their song. Yeah, he wants to go and see the world. And this is kind of what Gandalf kind of knew about him already. Like he knew deep down Bilbo wants to see the world. Right. Um, even if he doesn't quite at that moment in his life um, really feel that way. And I actually wanted to bring up another piece of Tolkien's writing from Unfinished Tales, which if you don't have, I highly suggest you go get it. It has a lot of great information from the first, second, and third age of Middle-earth. And one of the unfinished tales in this book is of the quest of Erebor. It's basically Gandalf during the events of Lord of the Rings after Aragorn's been crowned king, explaining to the hobbits why he chose Bilbo all those years ago for this adventure. And it offers some really interesting insight onto what was kind of going on behind the scenes, because we're really seeing The Hobbit from Bilbo's perspective. And, you know, he kind of makes an ass out of himself. And, you know, we can see that. But really, um, Thorin and company were, like, so insulted when they showed up and actually met Bilbo. This was the guy that Gandalf had. Uh, Gandalf says, like, 
they almost like stormed out, mm-hmm. thought I was making a mockery of their whole quest. And it was really only the fact that he had uh, Thorin's father's uh, map and key that really kind of saved the whole situation. But Gandalf, like long ago, had been to the Shire and knew Bilbo as a child. And so he thought, oh, maybe this guy would be perfect. You know, the dragon can't smell hobbits. And you know what? The hobbits could use a little kick in the pants anyway. And Bilbo might just be the one to, you know, really bring them into the wider world. And uh, so he goes back, but years later, and without really getting to catch up with Bilbo and see what's become of him. And he's like, in his middle age, has just like become this uh, portly, lazy uh, gentleman of the country who doesn't really, his bag inside has taken over. And there's that Took side is kind of like, it's not squashed out completely, but it's getting there. And Gandalf was kind of mortified by how much he had bet on that. And that the fact that it was almost completely ruined by like Bilbo Bilbo freaking freaking out out and... (laughs) Yeah, so it's it's just kind of funny, but you know, Gandalf being the you know devious bastard that he is, is able to, like you said, gaslight Bilbo into coming along with them on this adventure. Yeah, it's interesting to have that kind of background information because there's actually a point where one of the dwarves says something like that to Bilbo. Um, I I don't think it's in this chapter. I think it's in a, a later chapter. But they're basically like, yeah, we um thought we would be at the wrong place, except that the the door said, you know, burglar looking for adventure and pay. And that's cool that it was actually a problem and they weren't prepared for a hobbit to totally, you know, have a breakdown about it. Yeah, it wasn't just an unexpected party for Bilbo, but for Gandalf and the dwarves too. Everyone was kind of like, wait, what's happening here? (laughs) Yeah. Something I noticed while reading um, is Tolkien's like tone his narrator is very present. Oh, totally. It's like its own character throughout the whole story. Absolutely. It's very like, it seems to be very based on kind of an oral storytelling tradition where the storyteller is addressing you, the reader, and me, refers to me, the narrator. Which makes sense considering how The Hobbit came to be out of right. Tolkien telling stories, to like, oral children. stories to his children yeah. that he then wrote down. Yeah, exactly. Um, so the other thing I noted about how he speaks as the writer is this like mock austerity with which he tells the story. So everything's very serious, but it's mm. like so serious that it's a little silly. Um, and I think that's like a great hallmark of good children's stories. Yeah, like the narrator's definitely, he's pretty obsessed with like what's polite. Yeah. And what's, it, you know, it's very Hobbit. Like, yeah. it's like a Hobbit narrator talking to the audience. Right, exactly. Um, yeah, I really liked it. It reminded me a lot of like The Princess Bride or something mm-hmm. like that. Oh, yeah. And it's, I think this is another reason why The Hobbit is very easy to read. You have this narrator kind of explaining the story to you as you go along and commenting on commenting there's no hand holding like that in the lord of the rings (laughs) or the summer especially the silmarillion but it's kind of nice while we have it to have it. right absolutely um this is also the first time we get a mention of sauron um he's only referred to as the necromancer right um and i'll let you go into that a little bit more in a second but Something that I really like about this passage that where they're talking about the necromancer is, first of all, everything with the necromancer seems very distant, like this very distant problem that um, is big, like everyone knows about it. Even Bilbo knows who the necromancer is right. and, and kind of shows that he understands it's like a big deal, but it still feels very distant. Um, it doesn't feel like we're only chapters away from Bilbo finding the necromancer's ring of power. <laughs> 
Oh, absolutely. Because, I mean, at this point, the two things are totally unconnected. Yeah, so that's another thing that I like to keep in mind when I'm reading The Hobbit, that a lot of the Lord of the Rings lore hadn't been invented yet. In fact, the Necromancer didn't even have the name Sauron. So I think as opposed to looking at what The Hobbit story eventually evolved into, I think it's more insightful to look at what it evolved out of, which, like I said, were these, like, Uh, legends that he had been writing since 1916 at that point there is a character called the necromancer who later becomes sauron but his name at this point is thu the necromancer and he is the um number two lieutenant to the original dark lord but then he is overthrown and they say that in that overthrow thu escaped into the world and caused trouble for many years after so this is kind of what we're seeing a little bit Mm -hmm. in the hobbit is this like remnant of evil from an earlier age that's still lingering around in the world and Gandalf's like we got to uh we got to do something about that guy mm-hmm. or he's going to be trouble. In this small little passage that mentions the necromancer, we learn so much about the world and about the characters in place. Uh we learn that the dwarves are um basically ready for any fight regardless as to whether they could actually win that fight or not. Oh, they totally hold a grudge and will just not let anyone get in their way of getting what they feel is justice. The other thing we learned is that Gandalf has like knowledge that while it, it it's not limitless, he's not omniscient. We as the reader and the other characters in the book do not understand the limits of Gandalf's knowledge. And he only shares his knowledge as he sees fit. Like when he brings out Thror's map... And Thorin is like, what the fuck, dude? (laughs) You have my dad's map? Yeah, why didn't this come to me? (laughs) I've I've been, like, wanting this, you know? Like, this is important. And Gandalf is basically like, hey, I I know a lot of shit. um, And it's up to me when I share that information. Everything has this purpose that I see fit. Right. And, you know, Gandalf, as we know, and as his character evolves into Lord of the Rings, we know he is a big mover and shaker in Middle Earth. He's involved in all sorts of designs. And even um, the quest of Erebor that I mentioned earlier, I think, has a lot of insight into even his reasonings for getting involved in this adventure. He doesn't want the Necromancer and Sauron um, to ally with Smaug because he believes that he would try to attack Rivendell from the north. So... He wants to free up the North and get Smaug out of there and rob Sauron of an ally. And it's interesting that you say that, that he only reveals like what is just relevant, what people need to know. Because in the quest for Erebor, there's this great passage where Gimli is talking to him in the present. And he says, Well, I am glad to have heard the full tale, if it is full. I do not really suppose that even now you are telling us all you know. Of course not, said Gandalf. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, uh, later I'll talk a little bit about, like, the deus ex machina part of Gandalf's existence in this story. But um, this is just another thing where it's like, we don't really understand the scope of his power or knowledge at any moment. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to Bilbo, he's just this uh, this wizard at fireworks. You yeah. know, like, that's kind of, he's like, you're, oh, you're a fireworks salesman. Yeah. Um, and he is just, he is so much more. And he will become so much more as uh, the Lord of the Rings kind of takes shape. As someone who, you know, hasn't read the Lord of the Rings, but has watched the movies, um, and definitely watched the movies more than I've read the book of The Hobbit, um, 
I uh, sort of appreciate the humble beginnings of this story. Uh, like I mentioned before, like there's no predicting that this faraway necromancer um, is going to be like a huge part of this world. Oh yeah. Like even though it's like, oh, this bad guy. And like it's a big deal. There, it, it doesn't feel like personal to the situation. Um, and and I, I like that the mentions of him um, are are very like sparse. Yeah, it's just part of this sort of larger tapestry of like I said, the world that he was creating that the Hobbit is set within, and it's not really relevant to the story of the Hobbit, but it's there kind of just on the edges of the story. Um, and just enough to give you a sense of the scope of this world. That, like I said, he was trying to tie back to his earlier legends that he was already writing. Yeah. Um, well, the last thing I'll say about this chapter is that I absolutely love all of the food mentions. Um, it sounds delicious. I really want to make seed cake, um, which apparently is a like pound cake that it's a sweet pound cake that has rye seeds in it. Yum. caraway seeds in it so um i'm hopefully gonna make a gluten-free version of that maybe we'll share those recipes uh when we get them yeah totally our next chapter chapter two roast mutton again lovely little focus on food um the roast mutton that the trolls are eating sounds delicious to me <laughs> yeah um i think the biggest part uh, i this is another one that sticks Real, like really stands out in my memory. Um, I, I love this little story. And this is where you can totally tell that this was a story that existed outside of the scope of a larger epic. Um, it is, there's a perfect like beginning, middle and end in the chapter itself. Yeah, it's just yeah. a nice little uh, fairy tale kind of where these people get in over their heads and then with these unsavory characters and then through trickery and, you know, a powerful friend, <laughs> um, the the evildoers are defeated, and they are, the heroes are rewarded with you know a, a treasure. Yeah. So yeah, it, exactly. It's pretty you know classic fairy tale stuff. If you aren't reading along and you've never read The Hobbit before, basically Bilbo and the dwarves come across three large trolls who are eating roast mutton at their fire and basically complaining that they don't have man. To eat. <laughs> they don't have human flesh or hobbit flesh or dwarves to eat. Um, and I think what's so striking to me about this is like so far in the book, all of the characters have these like what we would at this point consider classical fantasy names, right? Bilbo, Bomber, Gandalf, Thorin, right? These right. are not normal English names. Um, and then suddenly we're presented with these three trolls named Bert, Tom, and Bill. <laughs> Yeah, and they, they speak with a Cockney accent, too. Yeah. Um, I really like that kind of anachronism. Uh, John Rateliff talks about in The History of the Hobbit, he notes that it's very interesting that these uncivilized folk have a London urban accent, and that's just very fitting for someone like Tolkien who had this like idealized view of rural country living and that it's actually the people in the city that are more uncivilized mm. and giving over more to their baser desires and that's like such a big theme of just like eventually when we get to sauron and um it's actually mentioned a little bit in the chapter about goblins of this like the idea of machines being like a corruption of totally nature and power and um 
he, he mentions killing machines at one point, like the machines designed to kill many. Um, right. And, you know, uh, you'll hear a lot about how Tolkien really disliked allegory and kind of drawing like one to one comparisons into real life. But I mean, I don't think you can really escape some of his experiences bleeding over into this and he was a survivor of world war one and he saw a lot of horror that really shaped him so you know i don't think it's unreasonable to you know when i'm reading this to think that oh yeah goblins or a strain of goblin blood that's come amongst men you know these are the people that eventually created like guns and tanks and stuff that tolkien really had you know a total distaste Mm -hmm, for mm -hmm. so um I find that very interesting and kind of some of the industrialization aspects of, you know, the darker forces in his world. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, the the naming of Bert, Bill, and Tom. Tom. In the moment of reading it, you, we haven't been introduced to any, like, human characters yet. We've got hobbits, we've got wizards, we've got dwarves, we've got trolls. Um, and it made me wonder, are these trolls humans? Uh, for a second, I, I know they're not, but... Um, like clearly they turn to stone when the sun rises, but, um, that's really interesting. Cause I mean, I've just, I've read this so many times and that's never even occurred to me because like I said, I know the whole story, but it's kind of hard to think about reading it for the first time. Yeah. Um, So yeah, that's a really interesting. And like, we know that men, humans exist in this world. Um, but I do like to think like, huh, it's so weird. Like we have these classic English names. (laughs) This is like the dwarf and hobbit's idea of humans. Right. That they're these uncivilized (laughs) trolls. And it's pretty funny. Yeah. To me, I mean, Thorin seems to be the only dwarf with any wits about him. They send like 12 dwarves forward who just kind of witlessly get captured by the trolls, bagged up and captured. And then... They just keep sending more dwarves yeah. until Thorin me, finally like hangs back a little bit. Let's be honest. The only reason there are these 13 dwarves is so that there can be like 13, 13 dwarves. dwarves. <laughs> They're not really, there's not a whole lot of uh, characterization of right. them. There's just this silly amount of this troop of dwarves. Thorin's really kind of the only character yeah. that has like... Um, a sense of character. I'd say maybe Balin too, mm-hmm. and Bomber in a more comedic way. Mm-hmm. But other than that, the the other ones are all pretty interchangeable. Yeah, Feely and Keely are the young ones, but that's really kind of their only defining trait. Yeah, they like fall in the river and and do stuff like that. I think they mentioned at one point that Dory is the strongest of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, yeah, outside of that, we really don't get a sense of yeah, who they are. It's just they're like, all kind of the same. Good. Now I have thirteen names that I can input into this <laughs> exactly. into this story. Um, yeah, it's sort of a far cry from what we see in the Hobbit movies, where they definitely try to individualize the dwarves and even give a dwarf a love story that doesn't exist in yeah. the book. Honestly, I think that was a, a stumbling. I think that's one of my biggest issues with the Hobbit movie is I think that they tried so hard to give each dwarf an individual kind of nature that it just felt so cartoonish to me. I mean, the story is cartoonish, but part of what I like about all these dwarves that just don't really have a character is like, that's like the cartoony part that I like about it. Right. But trying to make them all like endearing characters in their own right, I was just like, it's a little seven dwarves. Why, why the hell are you even trying to do this? Yeah, and I think, you know, to that point as well, it's like the dwarves are pretty stoic. Like, as characters, they're not, like, they sing a little song about putting the dishes away. Right. 
but they're like serious. Like they're on a very serious mission um, to reclaim the mountain and like totally and avenge and their, their treasure. Uh... And yeah, it's it's not like this. Like ha ha ha, we're Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Like woo. No, totally. Um, yeah. So I yeah I agree. Um, this is also in this chapter the first time we see the example of regular magic that the hobbits possess um, that that Tolkien refers to in the first chapter. Um, we see Bilbo sneaking around. He's very quiet. Basically, he thinks the dwarves are being super loud, even though... Yeah, I think it says that even like normal humans wouldn't even notice the dwarves themselves. Right. But Bilbo thinks they're being too loud. Right. Um, and we also see that Took side kind of come out of him again. Bilbo is a gremlin. Like any chance he gets to get into trouble, he ends up choosing it. When he discovers the trolls, he thinks to himself, well, I should go back and tell the dwarves that the trolls are here. He's like, I can't go back empty handed, though. So he sticks his hand in a troll's pocket and, of course, gets captured. It, yeah, uh, a bit of a wild card. Yeah, he's just that, uh... he's the wild card of the group, which I, I think <laughs> at the beginning you're like, how is this guy? Gonna how is this guy even going to be you in know, this group? helpful to them? In the immortal words of Always Sunny at Philadelphia, every crew needs a wild card. Yeah. And uh, Bilbo is definitely, definitely. Yeah. I had mentioned before about like Gandalf being a an agent of deus ex machina in the story yeah he kind of uh leaves in the story just in time for bilbo to develop as a character a little bit but then once they get in a little over their heads he arrives just in time to uh get them out (laughs) right and you know i i think this is like a huge part of like children's fantasy of you know oh no we're so in trouble and then the magical guy shows up um to save us but I, I do have to note that I, I like that Gandalf doesn't just show up and kill the trolls and that's the end of it. He still right. outwits them by mimicking their own voices and yeah. encouraging uses, them. He uses their own evil and bickering nature against themselves. Yeah. Which, I mean, as we will see as we go through all these books, evil being self-defeating is a huge theme of Tolkien. Yeah. Okay. So chapter three, a short rest. I went on a huge tangent in my mind at the beginning of this because uh, Tolkien starts the chapter off by saying, you know, it's really a shame that when things are good, we don't usually tell stories about it. Um, And when things are bad, that's like what we tell stories about. And, you know, I work in media and uh, that's definitely true. We always talk about how a lot of news sources end up... abiding by the principle of if it bleeds, it leads, you know, like finding the juiciest stuff. And uh, And also I'd say the other side of that is kind of the the saying, no news is good news. Right, exactly. You know, there's nothing really to tell, which is kind of a shame. Yeah. Which is what he's kind of lamenting, which I kind of really like. (laughs) Yeah, he like laments this and then he switches back around and he's like, yeah, but to really like talk about, you know, what the hobbits and the dwarves and Gandalf did while they were in Rivendell. There's really not much to say. They just had like a good time. Yeah. Let's get the story moving. Yeah. Um, I like how that's one thing I do appreciate about the Hobbit is how like concise the story is. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's kind of bam, 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 right into the next little adventure. And this isn't really an adventure. It's as it says, a short rest. And it's Mm -hmm. probably the shortest chapter in the book. So this is not something we're going to talk at length about, but I just have to say these elves are unhinged. Like 
They are not the elves. If you yeah, they're not the sorrowful elves that no, we see in who the are rest leaving of Middle Earth. You know, like yeah, or the bloodthirsty elves of the Silmarillion. Yeah, these are like when you first have ever learned the word elf, like probably in reference to like Christmas elves or something like that. This is like those elves. Um, they're very like fae, fairy, and uh, they like to sing and dance. They are still a people deserving of respect, and and they clearly have lots of knowledge, and they make really nice weapons. Yeah, and speaking with the weapons, you know, these Gondolin-made swords that they got from the Trolls' Cave is another example of the larger world of Tolkien kind of uh, just peeping just over the edge of the story. And Elrond himself is a character that's tied to those legends Um, In this chapter, it says of Elrond, The master of the house was an elf friend, one of those people whose fathers came into the strange stories before the beginning of history, the wars of the evil goblins and the elves and the first men in the north. In those days of our tale, there were still some people who had both elves and heroes of the north for ancestors, and Elrond, the master of the house, was their chief. So, you know, we get a little bit of backstory on Elrond. When they say the heroes of the north, that actually means men, not Mm. elves. So... Elrond is comes from both elves and men of those wars with the original Dark Lord that mm-hmm. I had uh, talked about. One of those big battles was, you know, the fall of Gondolin. And that's where Elrond kind of theorizes that these swords were probably raided by, you know, over the years passed down through trolls and orcs and whatnot, and now has come to the hands of Gandalf and Thorin and even Bilbo with his little uh, knife. And uh, he lets them keep them, which I think is a very magnanimous gesture. Yeah, and I, <laughs> especially when you consider that the king of Gondolin was Elrond's great-grandfather, in fact. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Tolkien doesn't really go into all that. <laughs> he doesn't like, oh, this is my great-grandfather's sword. He just kind of like lets them keep them, and he doesn't really claim any ownership to them. Yeah, but again, other than Elrond, Elrond's like the most serious elf we we kind of are exposed to in this chapter. If you are accustomed to watching the Peter Jackson versions of The Lord of the Rings um, and, you know, seeing Hugo weaving, being a very serious Elrond, I, I was just like delighting in my imagination thinking about Hugo weaving pretending to be one of these elves where <laughs> he's singing and he's sort of uh, a trickster and... And silly, and it, yeah, it's I actually... want the the musical version of the Council of Elrond. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like... um, and it's actually mentioned that the dwarves think the elves are very, very silly, but they're kind of silly for thinking. Yeah, the so... narrator says like, which is a very foolish thing to think. Yeah, <laughs> Chapter Four: Overhill and Underhill. Uh, we're introduced to the goblins, which I didn't realize are are orcs. I thought those were separate beasts. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. Tolkien will use orcs and goblins pretty interchangeably, but it's also confusing in The Hobbit. He will also say goblins and hobgoblins and orcs, mm. uh, which kind of seems to indicate there are these different creatures. But later in like The Lord of the Rings, he'll also use them interchangeably. So I think it's all meant to be the same species uh goblin is just kind of more of a colloquial way to say it Mm -hmm. the orcs of the misty mountains i think are called goblins the most okay um it's like a regional designation yeah you know like they're the orcs of isengard and even mordor are called like urkai 
which I think it, it roughly translates to like the people of the orcs. Um, it just basically is another way. Uruk is another way to say orc, as is goblin. And um, they're really all essentially the same thing. But there are these, you know, different physical characteristics of different groups of mm-hmm. goblins and orcs. Um, and the goblins are typically the smaller ones mm-hmm. in the Misty Mountains. Yeah. So like when I was reading this, they sounded, you know, similar size to the dwarves and to, to Bilbo. So I wasn't really thinking that. And and their passageways are described as tiny. Um, and it's kind of thought of like, oh, good thing that the dwarves and the hobbits are so small because otherwise like right. it like, you know, someone like Gandalf would have a really hard time fitting through this this area. I get so sad every time they lose a pony. Like earlier, they lost a pony um, or two ponies. I can't remember that uh, Philly and Killy were on. Um, in the Rose Mutton chapter. In the Rose Mutton chapter. They they lose it in the river. Um, and then they lose all of their ponies. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm bereft. Like... I, I just think it's so sad and it's 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 I, it's I don't know like why a, <laughs> I focus on it because it's this one little thing of like they don't have their ponies anymore. It's almost like a joke. It's almost like <laughs> comical, but like or at least that was my reaction. So <laughs> it's horrible. No, I know. Um, later in the Fellowship of the Ring, there there's a pony character that you know they similarly once they get to the Misty Mountains they part with but it has a much happier ending by the end of the lord of the rings but we will get to that later good (laughs) so you so hold on to that okay um yeah the goblins are interesting um there's a great goblin who's like king of the goblins of the misty mountains he seems to be like kind of the head head honcho head honcho he's like bigger than the others yeah he's described as having like a very large head (laughs) which i you know maybe in orcs that's like a sign of <laughs> yeah um i think what's really yeah. interesting is that they recognize the blades of gondolin um yeah that's interesting and to me that kind of seems to hint that the orcs have a sort of culture of their own a history that they pass down yeah their own history and yeah, their definitely. own side of it where these are not celebrated swords these are like biter and beard yeah. and like yeah, they're terrified of it. But other than that, we don't learn a ton in this chapter. Um, yeah. It's another situation of kind of Gandalf leaving, bad stuff happening, Gandalf showing back yeah. up. Although this chapter precipitates so much of the like climax of this story. After this, they go on to get into lots of other adventures. But then we find out that the death of the Great Goblin caused this chain reaction of mm. all the, the goblins of the Misty Mountains uniting to attack the Lonely Mountain in the Battle wow. of the Five Armies. So this is, the climax of the story is really born right here. Okay, cool. I didn't know that at all. Didn't realize that. Mm-hmm. Gandalf burns up a bunch of goblins, but even as they're escaping, um, it seems like they are met up with again by the goblins. Um, and uh, there's a little bit of a scuffle and Bilbo ends up falling off of the dwarven back that he is riding and being knocked out. And that brings us to our final chapter of this section, which is another standout chapter as far as imagery goes. Um, and that's Riddles in the Dark, chapter five. This is where we meet Gollum. It's pretty awesome. It's a really, I, I really like this chapter. We also, he finds the ring immediately. It's in like the third paragraph or something of the chapter. Yeah, and it's it's really funny because it's so understated. Every time I read this chapter and even this most recent time, I get to the part in the riddles where he's like, what do I have in my pocket? 
And I'm like, wait, where? <laughs> I, I, I must have missed the, the ring part, the one ring part where he finds the ring. And I have to go back and reread it. And it's like, oh, it's just so quick. And then it's just yeah. never talked about until later in the chapter. No, it's so quick. He, his hand brushes against the ring. He puts it in his pocket without knowing really why, like not even thinking about it. He's just like, I, I'll take this. Tolkien notes and that would change his fate forever basically and uh but he wouldn't know that for a long time right yeah this is i mean this is the turning point for bilbo you know he we've seen so far he has this desire to do these great adventurous things like with the troll stuff he's got that took side that you know we do see bubbling up but it's really the ring that allows him to give wholly over to that side Mm -hmm. and truly kind of go from this not so heroic character into the hero of the story, mm-hmm. essentially. Um, so yeah, Bilbo is trying to get out. He kind of cries to himself and he's feeling pretty bad about himself um, when Gollum happens upon him. And Gollum is terrifying. And Gollum is like a freak. He is so weird. I just think the way he talks is very interesting to have, to like create that character who is has been alone for so long that he can't even talk to another person without it being addressed to himself. Right. You can really see that Tolkien, um, as a scholar of Beowulf here, uh, Gollum, I think, was very inspired by Grendel. Mm-hmm. You know, he lives in an underground lake cave, and he's just, you know, he's got these big lamp-like eyes. He paddles around in a boat using his giant feet. Yeah, and it's just, I think it's worth mentioning that at this point, I mean, not only is the ring that Bilbo finds not yet the one ring, he hasn't created that legend yet, but also Gollum is not really a halfling yet or a hobbit. Mm-hmm. He is just this own weird creature. It's indicated that he's been cast out, but we don't know where yeah, he's Yeah, and we don't have an origin. We don't have anything from that. And he's not a goblin. He eats goblins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he just seems to like defy a lot of uh, placement here and kind of adds to the uneasiness of Bilbo. Yeah. Like, what is this thing? But, you know, he's able to kind of bond with him over these riddles. Yeah, and I, I would say as much as like this story itself, Riddles in the Dark, can um, I can see it being told to a, a child as like, oh, this is just a one-off little story. Um, for me, this is where we start seeing like the beginnings of an epic. Um, and it really comes from the relationship that Tolkien talks about as much as it's not the one ring of power yet. Um, he talks about how it's the only thing that Gollum has ever loved is this ring. And the relationship between Gollum and the ring is like, I think a sticking point where you're like, whoa, that was weird. What was that intense interaction? It's way more intense than the trolls. It's way more intense than anything with the goblins um, or with the elves. It's like suddenly we're brought into this like high stakes, very personal conflict between Bilbo and Gollum over the ring. Yeah, and I'd say there's this really great emotional moment when Bilbo is escaping and he has the chance while he's invisible to kill Gollum. And he's just like, yeah, this wretched creature, why shouldn't I kill it? And and then he thinks about how lonely this creature is. And he's like, well, he hasn't actually done me any harm. I mean, he's like kind of threatened to, but and he has this moment of pity, which is something that Tolkien values immensely. And we see that throughout all of his work and so he spares Gollum and that ends with Gollum having his undying hatred for the Baggins 
but also this is a thing that you know even Tolkien didn't really know it at the time but this one moment where Bilbo spares Gollum is just like setting up everything in the Lord of the Rings I mean Gollum is one of the most central characters to that Mm -hmm. story I mean he is essentially the one who ends up destroying Sauron at the end so I think it's interesting that you know just over the Misty Mountains here in Mirkwood there's the necromancer that Gandalf's gonna go deal with but like here under the mountains, we're already meeting his bane, his doom. Right. Um, and his one ring, um, even though there wasn't that connection yet, but that's what it would become. So I just find it interesting, these little things that Tolkien didn't know he was creating yeah. at the time. And we will go on to see of great consequence from like the smallest, humblest of beginnings, which, you know, I think is very... Relates to how the hobbits play into all of it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel really bad for Gollum, um, just in general. You know, he's a, a, a pitiful character. But also, um, I kind of hate that Bilbo, like, asks a non-riddle. I mean, at first, he's just saying the question out, out loud, what's in my pocket? Um, and then Gollum thinks that that is his next riddle um, and, and takes the bait and... and Bilbo lets him do so. And, it, you know, it, it's yeah. really not like a gentlemanly moment. On like, Yeah, Gollum in, just totally misunderstands. Yeah. And instead of, like, correcting him, he just, I'm going to use this to my advantage. Because yeah. there's no way he can know what's in my pocket. It's, so, an, it's another moment of that, like, Tuke, like, hey, like, within this gentleman's game of, of riddles, the has back and forth so that one, one player doesn't eat the other. Yeah, I mean, when we hear Gollum, I, you know, I think in Lord of the Rings, to call you know, the hobbits, you know, tricksy and false. It's like, he has good basis for that. Yeah, absolutely. Bilbo is being tricksy and false. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I, I feel really bad for him. But, uh, you know, Bilbo slips on the ring. He's invisible. Unlike what we see in The Lord of the Rings, he's not <laughs> ripped into the world of the ring race. Yeah, so he is like, you know, when you do wear the ring, you are in the world of shadows where you can see like the ring wraiths and stuff, but it's not quite you know, as like torturous and overwhelming as he definitely hadn't developed that part of, you know, of course, it's not the one ring yet. So yeah, um, and, you know, Tolkien was drawing from a lot of mythological sources. And and especially like Norse mythology, uh, ring myths are pretty common. So yeah, this wasn't supposed to be, you know, the one ring, it was just, you know, one of many magic rings that he says were common in the world mm -hmm. in ages past. Bilbo slips it on his finger with no problem becomes invisible. And decides that uh, he's going to follow Gollum out because Gollum thinks that he's trying to escape. And Gollum inadvertently leads him to his escape. Again, kind of these antagonistic evil forces of the world being self-defeating. Yeah, that basically brings us up to our next reading, which is going to start at chapter six, Out of the Frying Pan and Into the Fire. And we will read um, through chapter 10, A Warm Welcome. If you haven't already, follow us on our Twitter at halfaswellpod. Or you could go check out our website at halfaswellpodcast.com. And on there you'll find the Hall of Fire blog where William is is working up some stuff. If you are already familiar with <laughs> with Tolkien's books, um, that is definitely a, a good place to find some, some deeper explorations of yeah. the extended texts. Yeah, it'll be a nice deep dive into the lore if you're looking kind of for that next level analysis. I'll also be posting up basically like a reading journal as I make my way through the books. Um, and the, the comments will be enabled on that 
So if you want to join the conversation, that would be great. And you can email us if there are specific things that you want us to talk about. You can email us at halfaswellpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. I'm William. And I'm Sage. And this is Half Half As as Well. Well.